أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد We examined in the previous course how the Prophet was nursed by Halima al-Sa'diyya this faithful woman who took care of him for about five or six years. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the parents of the Prophet, his father Abdullah and his mother Amina. Abdullah was the father of the Prophet. There are some conflicting reports when it comes to the date of his death when he passed away. Most sources indicate, and they seem to be the accurate sources, that the Prophet actually never met his father. He passed away when his mother was pregnant with him. Some sources indicate the Prophet was only two or three months when Abdullah passed away. So in any case, the Prophet was either not born, which is the most accurate possibility here, or he was very young. Abdullah was one of the sons of Abdul Muttalib, he had 10 or 11 sons and he was the most prominent of them. He was highly loved by his father Abdul Muttalib and the, the most two prominent ones were Abu Talib, the father of Imam Ali and Abdullah, the father of the Holy Prophet. There's an interesting story that occurred before Abdullah got married, which gave him even more prominence. And this has to do with the well of Zamzam. The well of Zamzam, as we know, it started with who in history? With Ibrahim, his son Ismail, when he was born in Mecca, his, his mother Hajar, in the deserts of Mecca, she was searching for water, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused the spring to emerge which is Zamzam water. So it goes back to thousands of years ago to the time of Ismail السلام, when he was born and he was about to die from thirst and she ran back and forth seven times looking for water, she would see the mirage until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused the spring to flow in Masjid al-Haram, you know just by the Kaaba and that is the well of Zamzam. Now historically this well would exist for long periods of time until you come to the time of the ignorance, the Jahiliyyah of the Arabs. At one point in history either this well dries up or people just lose you know track of where it is. It's just wiped out, people no longer know where this well is, they can't find it. Or it dried up. So for many many years the Arabs did not have access to this spring, to Zamzam water. They did not know where it is, they had heard about it from their ancestors but they couldn't locate the well. Then we come to the time of Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Holy Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires Abdul Muttalib to dig up the well of Zamzam. So in Masjid al-Haram, by the Kaaba, 
we see Abdul Muttalib is digging. Some Arabs are making fun of him, you know, what are you doing? But he was inspired by Allah to relocate that well. So he's digging, trying to look for that well. When he finds the well, he finds that spring of water that we call Zamzam. Now some of those pagans in Mecca, upon seeing that Abdul Muttalib successfully found the well, they grew jealous of him because that's a great honor for you to discover this historical well. They grew jealous of him, they started attacking him, you know, verbally, making threats. And Abdul Muttalib was hurt by their comments. At this time, he only had one son, his oldest son, whose name was Harith. So Abdul Muttalib felt weak, you know, I only have one son, and now these pagans are plotting against me, they don't want me to have this honor. So he makes a vow with Allah. Oh Allah, if you give me 10 sons, I will sacrifice one of them for you. I'll sacrifice one of them for you. That's a nidr, that's a vow that Abdul Muttalib made. Yes? So at that time, Harith was the only son? Yes, Harith was the only son. Then how did Abdullah find the well? No, no, we're not talking about Abdullah. Abdul Muttalib is the one who found the well, not Abdullah. The father of the Prophet was not born yet in this story. You may have mentioned Abdullah. In any case, it's Abdul Muttalib. Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the, of the Prophet, he is the one who was inspired by God to discover that well. And he only had one son at the time, Harith, the uncle of the Prophet, the oldest uncle of the Prophet. So he had one son, when the Quraysh, they started attacking him, he made a vow, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet, he made a vow that if God gives me 10 sons, I will sacrifice one of my sons for him. What do you mean by sacrifice? We'll talk about that, meaning I'll have him killed. Yes, we'll talk about that. So he made a vow, the days go, go by, the years goes by, until after many, many years, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blesses Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet, with 10 sons. Now, Abdullah at this time, he's around 20 to 24 years of age, when he gets his last son, he's about 20 to 24. So once he's got 10 sons, what does he have to do? He has to fulfill a vow, he made a vow with God, a promise, a covenant, a nidr, that if you give me 10 sons, I'll sacrifice one of them. Now how do you decide which one you're going to sacrifice and kill? Abdul Muttalib, yeah, according to historical accounts, Abdul Muttalib did that. They were pulling straws to see which one. Exactly, so he put their names on let's say a piece of paper and he drew a lot, like just the lottery, like a draw. He pulled one of their names to see who is the one he should sacrifice. So when he pulled that name, he drew that name, the straw, and whose name was it? Abdullah. Abdullah, the father of the Prophet. Abdul Muttalib loved him dearly. Abdullah had a very, very special status. Everyone loved him. Just his humbleness, his akhlaq. Everyone was amazed by him. So Abdul Muttalib takes the hands of his son, Abdullah, to the altar where he's supposed to be sacrificed there and killed because he made a promise that he would kill him for the sake of Allah. 
The sentiments were high. Even the Quraysh who knew him, they were not comfortable with what was happening. Abdul Muttalib was a very respectful man. They had, nothing, they had not seen anything but goodness from him. And Abdullah was just this amazing young man. So some people started crying, especially the sisters of Abdullah. They started crying when they saw their brother being taken to the altar. Some of the Arabs there, they said, Oh Abdul Muttalib, if there's any way we can ransom his life by giving wealth, property, sacrificing, whatever it is, we're willing. We'll give our al-wealth. If there's a way that you can find to protect his life. Some Arabs who were present in, in, in the Grand Mosque, they said that. You know, they were so moved by this. Some of them were so moved, they said, we wish we would be killed instead of him. So nobody wanted Abdullah to die. But Abdul Muttalib made a vow. He wants to stick to his vow. What does he do? He sees that everyone is opposed to this idea. And so there was a suggestion. Instead of killing him, let's give another sacrifice of 10 camels. Because at the time, the blood money for killing someone was 10 camels. You know, if you kill someone, right? Then you would have to compensate the family of that person with 10 camels, we call this the diya or the blood money. So they said, instead of having Abdullah killed, why don't you just sacrifice 10 camels? And remember, a camel was very expensive. You know, you had to have a lot of money to even own one camel. So sacrifice 10 camels for the sake of Allah and let's spare Abdullah. He was hesitant. But this was a suggestion and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspired him to accept that suggestion. So he's like, okay, let's do a draw. On one straw, let's have the name of Abdullah. On the other side, let's write 10 camels. And then I will decide. If the 10 camels come out, I'll do as you say. I'll accept your suggestion. So he does this draw, what happens? The name of Abdullah comes out again. So he's like, no. I won't accept this suggestion. They said, okay, increase it to 20. Put 20 camels on one side, and on one side the name of your son Abdullah, and then do another draw. He said, okay. He drew it the third time, whose name came out? Abdullah again. They said, let's increase it to 30. They did this 10 times, until the 10th time, you had 100 camels on one side, and the name of Abdullah, on another side. They're like, okay, this is the last time. Just do this draw. When he took this draw, the last time, the name of the 100 camels came out. Abdul Muttalib says, wait a minute, that's not fair. 10 times we're doing a draw and the name of my son comes out. Now once the name of the camels come out, I need to do more draws to make sure that this is what God wants me to do. So he does another draw, 100 camels, Abdullah, what, what comes out? The name of the hundred camels. He keeps doing this a number of times. Every time he does this, the hundred camels come out. So he takes this as a sign from God. Okay, God has accepted this suggestion and that's how you ransom the life of your son Abdullah. So he took the hundred camels, he sacrificed them and you know he gave them to everyone. All those who were present there at the Grand Mosque, the poor people. He gave the meat to all those who needed it.
A few observations here. You could be saying, wait a minute, how could he do something like that? Especially he was a believer in God. How do you make a vow to kill your own son? That's not even a valid vow. You have no right to kill your son. Scholars have likened this incident to the incident of Ibrahim السلام, when he was instructed by God to kill who? His son Ismail or as the Christians and the Jews say Isaac, Ishaq as the Bible says. That's why in one hadith the Prophet says, أَنَا بْنُ I am the son of the two sacrifices. The first is Ismail, his great-great-grandfather, and the second is his father Abdullah. So just like Allah inspired Ibrahim to sacrifice and kill his son, then he saved him, Allah inspired Abdul Muttalib to make this vow to sacrifice his son, but his ultimate plan was to save him. To show the status of Abdullah and how important he was. Because after this incident, everyone saw Abdullah even in a better light. They're like, wow, this is the person whom God saved through this draw, through this incident. With the discovery of Zamzam, it started. The vow started and that gave prominence to Abdullah. So this was one way of God showing the status and the importance of Abdullah, the father of the Prophet. Why, can I, sorry, can I ask a question? Yes. Why didn't the Prophet do that for Imam Hussain too? He knew ahead of time that Imam Hussain was going to be like, martyred. Why didn't he do that for him? Why did he kill, not kill him you mean? No, not, not that. Why didn't he do like a fadu or something? Because they changed the destiny through... Yes, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had willed that this final sacrifice, which is the greatest honor and the greatest reward that Allah will give, should be to the Prophet and his grandson. So Allah spared Ibrahim from that sacrifice, but He wanted to give that honor to His last messenger. Because through this sacrifice, religion was saved. Through this sacrifice, Imam al Hussein and the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt were given the highest reward more than any Prophet of God. So, this was the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate honor that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them. So, this is the only decree that couldn't be changed? It's not that it couldn't be changed, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala willed this to show the status of Ahlul Bayt to the whole world, to show the status of Imam Hussein to the whole world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It was not meant for it to be changed. It was the ultimate sacrifice that God wanted for His Messenger and the Messenger of course accepted. Because God did not impose it on them. It was an option. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet and even Imam Hussein had that option. You know, if you want this great, great honor, then accept the sacrifice. If not, you'll still go to paradise, you'll still be, you know, the servants of God, but you won't have that amazing honor. So it was the will of God, but it was optional for the Prophet to accept and they did accept. The Prophet said, Ya Allah, if this is your will, if this is what you want, then I fully embrace it and I fully accept it. So we can examine this incident and relate it to where? To Prophet Ibrahim Just like that incident happened and Allah ended up sparing his life, the life of Ismail, God did the same with Abdullah and Abdul Muttalib. It was a way to show you know, their status. And in the end, Allah's will was never to have Abdullah be killed, but you know, to save him and to show his status. 
Now after this incident, some hadith say on that same day, after he was saved and the 100 camels were slaughtered, he takes his son Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib takes his son Abdullah to the house of Wahab. He was a very respectful man in Mecca and he had a daughter by the name of Amina. Abdul Muttalib, maybe to, because the incident was so stressful for them, he wanted a good ending on that day. So he takes his son to the house of Wahab and they ask the, for the daughter of Amina. He goes and proposes and he asks Wahab that my son Abdullah would like to marry your daughter Amina. So she accepted and after that they had their wedding. So that's when Abdullah got married. It was after this incident of you know the sacrifice and the camels. He was about 20 to 24 years of age at this point when he got married. So that's the father of the Prophet Abdullah and the mother is Amina. She came from a very respected noble family. They were both believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They had a beautiful life. Imagine those early days in their home. She becomes pregnant soon after that and they're waiting for this new baby. What happens is Abdullah had to go on a business trip. He went to Syria on a business trip. He went with a caravan from Mecca. Many months later, maybe about six months later, it would take a normal trip would take four to six months going on a caravan from Mecca to Syria, do your business and then come back. After about six months, the caravan, that same caravan in which Abdullah went to Syria, that same caravan came back. It came back to Mecca. Abdul Muttalib, his father, the father of Abdullah was anxiously waiting, you know, to see his son. Amina, the wife of Abdullah, she was also there waiting to receive her husband. You know, it was just like an airport where you go and you wait for your loved ones to come back. It was announced in the city that so-and-so caravan has arrived. So anyone who had relatives or friends in that caravan, they would come out to receive them. Abdul Muttalib is there, Amin is there, they're waiting. Everyone comes out of the caravan, but Abdullah is not there. He's not to be found. So Amina starts crying. Imagine they're just newlywed. She's got a baby, she's pregnant. Abdullah is not found. They start worrying. They send news here and there, messengers to ask about where his whereabouts. They learned that Abdullah on his way back he got ill, he got sick and he stayed in Medina. Medina is about 250 miles north of Mecca, it's about 400 kilometers, maybe 250 to 270 miles north of Mecca. So on his way back going south to Mecca, he got ill so he couldn't continue his journey, he stayed where? In Medina. He had relatives in Medina, Abdullah had relatives in Medina, so he decided to stay with his relatives. Now unfortunately his illness intensified and he had to stay in, in Medina, he couldn't continue his journey. Abdul Muttalib sends his oldest son Harith, he tells him Harith, go to Medina and bring Abdullah. I want him back immediately. So Harith goes to Medina searching for Abdullah to take him back to Mecca. 
When he reaches Medina, he's given the very sad news that Abdullah has passed away. So he goes back to Mecca and he informs his father, Abdul Muttalib, that, you know, my condolences to you, Abdullah has passed away and he is buried there in Medina. So the Prophet he grew up an orphan, he was born an orphan. He never actually met his father. Then, as we explained before, Halima Sa'diya took care of the Prophet, she nursed him. After about five or six years, she brought the Prophet back and she gave him to his mother Amina. When the Prophet was six years old, Amina wanted to visit the grave of Abdullah. She'd been waiting for the Prophet to come back and to go with her young son, to go to Medina, go on a trip and to visit the grave of Abdullah. So when, Amin, when Halima Sa'diya brings back the Prophet and she hands him to his mother Amina, she tells him let's go on a trip. So with some other relatives and the Prophet is now six years old, with his mother, they go where? To Medina. Imagine now the emotional sentiments, you know, the Prophet has heard about his father Abdullah from his mother. She would tell him what kind of qualities he had, the history of Abdullah and the Prophet really loved his father even though he never met him. So now this was the first time that the Prophet would go to Medina and actually visit the grave of his father Abdullah. So when they arrive Medina, they go to that house in which Abdullah passed away and after that they go to the grave of Abdullah. So with his mother, imagine that emotional scene, the Prophet is sitting on the grave of his father and it was a very, very tragic scene. Now what happens is after this journey of visiting the grave, they are now on their way back to Mecca. On their way back to Mecca, they reach an area called Al-Abwa. It's north of Mecca. In that area, the mother of the Prophet Amina now becomes ill and she passes away there. So on that journey, on his first journey to visit the grave of his father, he also loses his mother and he returns back to Mecca without his mother. This was a very emotional moment for the Prophet. Now he's only six years old, he's lost both parents. His grandfather Abdul Muttalib takes care of him, he's now at the age of six. Now there are several reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had his messenger orphaned at this young age. One of them is to test the Prophet and to elevate his status because in times of difficulty and tragedy, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala trains his messengers to become strong. So it was really a test to elevate the Prophet, that's number one. Number two, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to make it very clear for that society and for the world that no one educated the Prophet. Remember the Prophet was unlettered, he did not have a teacher, he did not read and write and even when he was young he did not have a father who would teach him. He even lost his mother at a young age. So that was really a powerful message that later when this man would bring a divine book, who taught him? Because some would say, okay, he had smart parents who taught him all of that. 
He didn't grow up with his parents. As for his mother, he was away from her, you know, most of the time. He was uh, in a desert with Halima Sa'diya and her tribe. And what did they know? They didn't have any knowledge. None of them knew how to read or write. And he did not have a father who was with him every day teaching him. So that maybe was a wisdom, a hikmah for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have his prophet an orphan in order to make a statement that the prophet didn't have anyone teaching him. He did not go to school, he didn't have a teacher, not even his own parents taught him these you know, ideas that he would later spread. So this was really powerful for the Arabs that you know this person must have received revelation. Where did he get that knowledge from? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know in the Quran he says, Alam fa'awa. Didn't Allah not find you as a yatim, as an orphan and he gave you shelter? And this just shows you that this boy who was so weak, he lost his own parents, how is it that he became such a great human being? It's only by the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the Prophet after he became a messenger, he would visit the grave of his mother on his way from Medina to Mecca. He would visit the grave of his mother. In fact, Muslim, Sahih Muslim narrates a hadith which states, I asked Allah to give me permission to visit the grave of my mother. Allah gave me permission. Then the Prophet says, Visit the graves of your loved ones because it reminds you of death. So this hadith indicates first of all that you can visit the graves because some of these you know, Wahhabis or extremists will tell you, oh, this is shirk, you can't visit any grave. Well, the Prophet visited the grave of his mother. And this also indicates that she was faithful. Had she died a mushrik, Allah would not have given permission for the Prophet to visit the grave, you know, of his mother who disbelieved in God and she ascribed partners to Allah. This is also an indication that she was a faithful woman. Yes, we examined in the previous course that the majority of Sunnis believe Abdullah and Amina died as kuffar. Yeah, even his mother. Even some say his mother died an unbeliever and she did not uh, believe in the one God. Absolutely, yeah. Even until today, you'll find many, many schools of thought who believe the very, very parents of the Prophet were not believers. So this is one hadith that indicates she was a believer because he asked permission from God and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did give him permission. And where is this mentioned? In Sahih Muslim, so in one of their authentic books. So Abdul Muttalib took excellent care of the Prophet after he lost his mother. You know, he would not eat unless this young boy was with him. He would tend to his needs. He would protect him as much as he could. Abdul Muttalib had realized early on that this boy was special and that he would be a prophet. He would see a number of signs. For example, one hadith states, Abdul Muttalib had a rug on which he would sit on in Masjid al-Haram by the Kaaba. He would sit there, he was one of the you know, prominent members of the Quraysh family, of the Bani Hashim family. And his sons, the sons of Abdul Muttalib would surround him to protect him from anyone who would come. Even from kids who would come, they would not allow them access to Abdul Muttalib. 
The hadith states when the Prophet used to come, imagine a boy of six, seven, eight years old, he's coming, he's running towards Abdul Muttalib. Some of his uncles, the uncles of the Prophet, they would try to stop him. You know, don't go to Abdul Muttalib, he's sitting there, he's praying, whatever he was doing, don't disturb him. When Abdul Muttalib would see that scene, that some of his sons are trying to take away this boy, the Prophet, he would stop them. He says, no, 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 please. Whenever he comes, let him come and sit next to me on this rug. Remember, in that society, a boy would not be sitting there. This was a very important place in Masjid al-Haram. But he made an exception for Prophet Muhammad. He would sit next to him and Abdul Muttalib would say, I see the signs of kingdom in him. And when he mean, what he means by kingdom is that Allah will give him prophethood. So we see that Abdul Muttalib early on knew that this boy was special and that God had appointed him for a very important mission. <coughs> one hadith states one time Abdul Muttalib asked the Prophet, he was a boy, maybe about eight years old. He told him, I have a few camels, you know, maybe in a farm in an area, please go look after them, some of them are missing. So this young boy, he goes, he's looking after those camels, trying to gather them, but it takes him a while before he comes back. Abdul Muttalib starts worrying, what happened to him? Why did it take him so long? He starts worrying so much, he goes and he holds on to the Kaaba and he says, Oh Allah, did, did, did a change in your plans happen? What happened? How come he's not back? And he anticipated maybe somebody did something to the Prophet, maybe somebody killed the Prophet. So he did that a number of times when finally the Prophet came back, Abdul Muttalib hugged him and he told him, I was so worried about you, this is the last time I send you to, you know, take care of something. I will never send you again outside the city to do something because I'm afraid somebody will kill you. So we see that he had this special concern for the Prophet and when he said while holding the Kaaba, oh God, is there a change in your plans? It means he knew that there was a plan that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted for this young boy. So Abdul Muttalib, he saw many signs about this amazing boy which indicated he would be a messenger and a prophet. Now history tells us that Abdul Muttalib once made a journey to Yemen. There was a famine, there was a problem in Mecca, severe poverty, they did not have crops or food, so they had to go south to Yemen to ask for assistance from the king. Now the king at the time was a man by the name of Saif ibn the Yazan. Saif was the king of Yemen at the time. So they went to him, they visited him and they asked him to give them some food to take back to Mecca. He took the Prophet with him, this young boy Muhammad, he took him with him to that trip. That king Saif, he saw this young boy and he was very interested in him. He kept looking at him, examining him very, very precisely, looking at him very carefully. Then he pulls Abdul Muttalib to the side and he tells him, look, there's something special about this boy. Apparently he was Christian and he had knowledge of the Bible. He told him, I've read in my books that the last messenger 
has a number of signs. I see this, these signs in this boy. And we're told in our books that the final messenger, he will be orphaned at a young age, then his grandfather and uncle will take care of him. Who is this boy? Is he related to you? He tells him, yes, this is my grandson. Both his parents passed away, so he's an orphan. I am now taking care of him and I am his, his, grand, his grandfather. Saif tells him, look, I'll share this secret with you. Your grandson will be a messenger. It's mentioned in our books. So take good care of him. Now I don't want to go public with this because I'm afraid if I say that from now, some will kill him. And according to this hadith, he says specifically some of the Jews. They will try to kill your grandson. So take extra caution. Take precaution in raising your grandson. And I know that I will not make it. He was old at the time. I will not make it by the time this grandson becomes a messenger. But know, O Abdul Muttalib, that if I were alive, when he would announce his mission, I would use my government and my army and all of my resources to come and help him because he is the final messenger. So Abdul Muttalib would constantly see these signs that there's something special about this baby, this boy, even others, kings, from their own books they have signs about him. So Abdul Muttalib had a very special relationship with the Prophet. They go back to Mecca, now at the age of eight, so two years after the Prophet loses his mother, Abdul Muttalib was now old at the time, you know, he was over 80 years old. Abdul Muttalib at the age of 82, he passes away that year. The Prophet was how old at this time? Eight years old. So when the Prophet was eight years old, he loses his grandfather. And this was a very tragic event for the Prophet. Imagine, he didn't have a father, he lost his mother two years ago, now he loses his guardian, his protector, and the one who takes care of him. Before Abdul Muttalib passes away, in his will, he makes a request for his son Abu Talib to be the caretaker of the Prophet. Now Abdul Muttalib had many sons, his oldest son was Harith, his wealthiest son was Abbas, but he did not choose any one of them. He chose specifically Abu Talib, the father of Imam Ali, to take care of the Prophet and to raise him. Because Abu Talib was known for his faith, for his wisdom and for his high status. So Abdul Muttalib found him to be the most appropriate son to take care of the Prophet. So the Prophet at the age of eight, he moves to the house of Abu Talib and his wife uh, Fatima. Fatima was the mother of Imam Ali He moves into their house and they are the ones who raise him. Abu Talib takes the Prophet, he takes him on a journey to Syria when the Prophet was around 12 years old. Some say 9 years old, but say, some say when he was 12 years old. Abu Talib went on a trip, in the winter he would go to Syria, in the summer he would go to Syria to do business. This was customary for the Arabs to do. In the summer they would go to Syria, in the winter they would go to Yemen to do business. The journey of the summer and the journey of the winter. This was common amongst the Arabs to do business and to do trade. 
Abu Talib wanted to go to Syria. Initially he refused to take the Prophet with him because he did not want the Prophet to come on this journey. There are dangers whenever you would travel at the time. He wanted him to stay safe in Mecca. But the Prophet cries. He was so attached to Abu Talib. He cries when he sees Abu Talib departing. Abu Talib, his heart is broken. And when he sees the Prophet, this boy, this 12-year-old boy crying, he says, okay, I'll take you with me. I don't want you to stay here and be heartbroken. So he takes the Prophet with him on that journey. They're now on their way to Syria. This was now the first time that the Prophet is going to Syria on such a long journey. He's examining the landscape. Syria was beautiful with these lush hills. They passed through many villages, many areas. Now, on their way to Sham, you know, to Damascus, to Syria, they pass by a village by the name of Busra. Busra was a village which had a very important monk by the name of Bahira. Bahira, we call him. Bahira was a very well-known monk, a Christian monk who lived in this village. He was known for his deep knowledge. In fact, many Arab tribes, when they would go to Syria, they would pass by this village just to talk to Bahira. They would consult him, they would learn from his wisdom. He was a very, very wise man. Yes? Uh, did Abu Talib know that he was, uh, the Nabi Muhammad was the Prophet? Yes, Abu Talib also had seen signs like the one we'll just talk about now, that this boy was special and that he would be a messenger, yes. Even in lines of poetry he does say that. In lines of poetry that we'll examine later, Abu Talib says that we've seen in the books, in the scriptures, that you are a messenger just like Musa and Isa. So he did know, there were these signs that he had seen. So they reach this village and of Busra and they meet this monk, they're passing by, they happen to meet him. When Bahira sees this young boy, just like that king of Yemen, he starts examining him very closely. He's seeing him, this boy is not your average boy. He's got these signs, you would see his shoulder, his facial features, his manners, so he approaches the caravan and he says, who's responsible for this young boy? Who's the guardian of this young boy? They tell him the guardian of this young boy is Abu Talib, it's his uncle. He says, please bring him, I want to talk to him. So he talks to Abu Talib and he tells him, this is your nephew? He says, yeah, this is my nephew. He tells him, look, I have many, many signs in our books. I master the Torah, the Injil, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And your boy is very, very special. I see all the signs of prophethood in this boy. And he seems to be the final messenger who will come at the end of time. So he tells him in our books, it's mentioned that his name is Muhammad. What's the name of this boy? He tells him his name is Muhammad. And he asks him some other questions to know whether he's the prophet and he realizes all the signs are there. You know, he's born in Mecca, he grew up an orphan, he lost his grandfather, now his uncle is taking care of him. So Bahira tells Abu Talib the same exact thing that that Yemeni king told Abdul Muttalib. He tells him, look, 
your grandson, your nephew will have enemies, especially some Jews, they will try to kill him. So make sure that you protect him. And I don't advise you to continue on this journey. If some people find out upon seeing him, then this will impose a danger to his life. This will pose a danger to his life. So I suggest you take him back, keep him safe in Mecca until he grows up. Abu Talib is now really concerned. Should he continue on this journey? Should he not continue on this journey? But he decides for the safety of the Prophet to go back to Mecca. Now there are some sources here that indicate, Sunni sources, that Abu Bakr was there present on that journey and Abu Bakr is the one who had the Prophet go back to Mecca. He ordered Bilal, he gave an order to Bilal, Bilal take Muhammad back to Mecca and save his life. This hadith, this historical hadith is problematic for a number of reasons. First of all, some historians have mentioned Abu Bakr was not even present in that trip. So how did this happen? That's number one. Number two, Abu Bakr was at least two years younger than the Prophet. So the Prophet was how old at this time? Twelve. Even some narrations say he was nine, but let's say twelve. So Abu Bakr must have been less than ten years old. Bilal was several years younger than Abu Bakr. Bilal was no more than seven years old at this time. How is it possible that Abu Bakr is now in charge and he's giving an order to Bilal, a seven-year-old boy, telling him to take Muhammad who's 12 years old uh, to back to Mecca? Doesn't make sense. Absolutely, make, why is Abu Bakr here involved? Why is he giving orders? He's younger than the Prophet. And why is Bilal, a seven-year-old boy, taking Muhammad, a 12-year-old boy, back to Mecca? This hadith was forged to show that early on Abu Bakr had a special relationship with the Prophet and he knew he'd be a messenger and he believed in his message early on and he wanted to protect the Prophet's life. That was the political motive behind such hadiths. And that's why some, some Sunni scholars based on such hadiths, they've said yeah Abu Bakr was the first person to believe in the Prophet, not Imam Ali. Because early on he knew in his uh, special status and he would take care of him and protect his life. Another point here, what did Abu Bakr have to do with Bilal here? Why is he giving him an order like he's a slave? Bilal at that time was not a slave for Abu Bakr, he was owned by Umayyah. 30 years later according to some historical accounts, Abu Bakr purchased him and he became a slave for Abu Bakr. Not when he was seven. So on what basis is Abu Bakr even commanding Bilal like he's a slave? to take him back to Mecca, he, didn't, he did not even own him at the time. So this hadith, this historical account is highly problematic and we have issues with it. It's just you know not plausible that the Prophet is 12 and these two younger boys are making decisions for him and, and taking him back to Mecca, it's just not possible. So the correct version of the story is that Abu Talib himself took him back to Mecca. He feared for his life, Bahira made him really concerned by saying that, that you know the, he has a bright future, brilliant, br brilliant future, he will have many enemies who will try to kill him, so make sure you don't continue on this journey. So it's Abu Talib who actually took back the Prophet to Mecca. Yes brother? So 
when they're mentioning that it's going to be like specifically a group of Jewish people that might want to kill him, if they also believe that he was the prophet, do they mean like a specific group and not in general? Yes, yeah, see, Bahira was not referring to all Jews. Mm -hmm. He was probably referring to those Jews in Medina who would later try to kill the Prophet, and they did. Mm -hmm. Like uh, at the Battle of Bani Quraidha, they conspired with the pagans to have the Prophet killed. On a number of occasions, uh, at one time they put poison in the food of the Prophet. They so they, there were efforts by the Jews to kill the Prophet, and that's probably what he was referring to. Initially, the Jews were also waiting for this final messenger to emerge. But then when they realized he's becoming prominent and he's getting all the spotlight and he's not from Bani Israel, he's not from the Jewish tribes, he's from the uh, lineage of Ismail, that caused them to fight him. Because they wanted the last messenger to be a Jewish prophet, to be from their uh, ancestry or from their line, from their descendants. So we see that yes, there were indications in those books that some Jews will try to kill the Prophet and that's exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. After the Prophet announced his uh, you know, message, not all Jews but some Jewish tribes, they tried to kill the Prophet. So he takes him back to Mecca. Another observation about this incident, you will find many Orientalists throughout history, they use this incident, the story that happened with Bahira, this monk, the Christian monk, to say that it was this incident which gave Muhammad the idea of starting his religion and all those teachings that he brought in the Quran, the origin of it was Bahira. He learned it all from him, he took the stories of previous prophets from his Bible, he taught him all of that, he took it and 28 years later he started a new religion. Some Orientalists accuse the Prophet of doing that. However, this is not true for a number of reasons. First of all, the Prophet didn't live with this monk. He was just on a journey. You know, he's, they spent a few days there. How are you going to learn all of that in a few days? Especially when you're unlettered, you don't read, you don't write, you have not been to school. That's just not possible. To learn the depth of the Torah and the Injil for you to start this religion, because there's a lot of similarities between the Qur'an and the uh, previous books. How can you learn all of that in a few days? That's just impossible or highly unlikely. Number two, the Quraysh, the pagans of Mecca, they tried to bring every excuse to attack the Prophet and say he's not a messenger. They called him a magician. They also accused him of taking the uh, teachings from Christians and Jews, but they never accused him of taking the te teachings of Bahira. So if this had been the case, then the Quraysh would have easily discredited the Prophet and say, oh, it's that journey that you had with Bahira and that's how you got these teachings. They never made any mention of that. So this is an indication that that is, that is not the case. Number three, while there are similarities between the Quran and the Bible, but the Quran when it speaks about the history of previous nations and prophets, it's very different than the Bible. It first of all, it gives us details not found in the Bible. Secondly, it gives us another perspective. The Bible is filled with verses that, you know, picture the prophets and display them in a very negative way. 
you know, they would commit adultery, they would get drunk, they would do acts of injustice, they would kill people unrightfully, so on and so forth. You find none of that in the Qur'an. So the Qur'an has another source. Yes, some similarities do exist, some basic ideas in both divine books, but there are so many different details in the Qur'an which tell you that the Prophet did not get those details from Bahira. He had another source which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you will find if you're ever researching the biography of the Prophet and the story, you will find some Orientalists who tried to use this incident to say, oh that's where Muhammad learned his teachings and he developed them and he made his religion. But that is really not the case, that's false. Now finally let's talk about the faith of the Prophet himself and also his grandfathers, you know, what was their religion? The Prophet, before God sent him as a messenger, before he, did, he gave him the religion of Islam, what was his religion? Did he have a religion? Was he a Jew? Was he a Christian? Was he on the path of Ibrahim? None of that, what is it? There are three opinions over here amongst the scholars. The first opinion says, the Prophet was a Prophet before he received the message of Islam. Even when he was a boy, even when he was born, he was already a Prophet, but he had not announced that to the people. So he would receive revelation from God, God would inspire him with teachings, and he was not instructed by God to go public with it. So during those 40 years, the Prophet was a Prophet. He received inspiration and revelation from God, but he was not ordered to convey that message to his people. At the age of 40, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, now go public with your message. We have a number of hadiths about this, that the Prophet before the age of 40, he was a messenger, he did receive revelation from God. So he had his message from Allah, he did not follow any other sharia, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had revealed to him his teachings, his religion and his sharia. And it was Islam, it was the religion of Islam, he would practice the religion of Islam, however not publicly. And he would not publicly preach about the religion of Islam. This is just like Isa alayhi salam. The Quran says that Jesus when he was born, he was a prophet. He says, I am a prophet. When he was a baby and he spoke in that incident, he says, I'm a prophet but he was not responsible for going public with his message. So Jesus when he was just a few months old, was he a prophet or not? Yes he was. Did he have a sharia, a message to convey to the people? No, not yet. Later Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him, go and preach uh, to your people. So it's the same with the prophet. He became a messenger at the age of 40, but before that he was a prophet and he would receive revelation and he would be inspired by Allah just as the baby Jesus would be inspired by Allah. So that is the first person, the, the first uh, opinion amongst our ulama. Al-Allam al-Majlisi, a very prominent scholar who is the author of Bihar al-Anwar which is a 110 volume work on the hadiths, he is of that opinion. He says, I've examined the hadiths and he's an expert on hadiths, the hadith of Ahlul Bayt, and they seem to indicate that he was a prophet even before the age of 40. So that was his religion, Islam, he received it from God, however, he was not ordered by God to convey it or deliver it. Yes, did you have a question? Okay, that's the first opinion. 
What is the second opinion? The second opinion states that he followed the path of the Hanifiyyah. One of the titles of Ibrahim is Hanif, Ibrahim al-Hanif, Ibrahim the right one, the righteous one, the one who is on the right path, the upright one. Hanifiyyah means the upright religion. We know that the grandfathers of the Prophet, they followed the Hanifiyyah, they were on the path of Ibrahim So whatever the religion of Ibrahim was, they followed that religion. So Abdullah, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfathers of the Prophet, when we said that they were faithful and they worshipped God, what was their religion? Their religion was the religion of Ibrahim which we call the Hanifiyyah. Now remember it's not the Hanafiyyah, Hanifiyyah. Hanafiyyah are those who follow Abu Hanifa. That's a Sunni school of thought. This is Hanifiyyah, there's a, there's a Ya over there, an extra vowel. And that is the path of Ibrahim Now one could ask the question, but Ibrahim was not the final messenger before the Prophet. You had Musa and Isa wasn't Jesus the last universal messenger? So how come they were not Christians? How come they did not follow the path of Isa Why did they follow Ibrahim? What was the reason? Scholars have indicated that while Prophets Ibrahim and Jesus and Moses are universal messengers, Prophet Ibrahim was the most universal messenger. His message was universal for the entire world. Jesus and Moses, even though they were universal prophets, but they were sent to Bani Israel, not to the entire world. Is there a verse in the Quran that proves this or not? Yes. Surah Ali Imran, the third chapter, verse 49. When Jesus is speaking about himself and his prophethood, he says, وَرَسُولًا إِلَىٰ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ أَنِّي قَدْ جِئْتُكُمْ بِآيَةٍ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ He says, I'm a messenger for Bani Israel. I have signs and scriptures for you. So Prophet Isa السلام, his main message was for the Jewish people, for Bani Israel, the children of Israel. So those who were not from the Bani Israel, they still could continue on the path of who? Abraham They were not obligated to follow the Sharia of Musa and Isa. If they wanted to, that was fine, that was optional. But they could just stick to the Sharia of Ibrahim. Because Musa and Isa were specifically sent for Bani Israel, and this is the proof from the Quran. Therefore the grandfathers, the Arabs, in Mecca, those who were believers, they were on the path of Ibrahim They had the religion of Ibrahim and the Prophet also was on that religion, the religion of the Hanifiyyah. Now what is the religion of the Hanifiyyah? Al-Imam al-Sadiq explains to us in a beautiful hadith, the religion of Prophet Ibrahim did not have this very detailed Sharia that we have or the Jewish Sharia. You know, the Jewish code of law is very detailed. The Islamic code of law is very detailed. The religion of Ibrahim did not have this elaborate Sharia system. The Imam السلام, says, Kanat Sharia to Ibrahim, the religion of Ibrahim, Tawheed, believe in one God, Wal Ikhlas, be sincere, offer your actions only to Allah, 
don't worship any idols. And this is really the fitrah. The Imam says that's the fitrah. He was instructed to pray, not any particular manner, just pray to Allah, know that you have a creator, worship the Almighty God. You don't have to do it in four units, rak'ahs, just pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, enjoin the good, forbid the evil. There was no laws of inheritance, the laws of inheritance that if you leave a family behind, you know, this amount goes to your son, to your daughter, to your wife. This is something that later Sharia is brought forth and the Quran brought forth. The Sharia of Ibrahim, you did not have the laws of inheritance. Yes. So about the other prophets, though, you still have to believe that they're prophets. Because you still have to believe they're messengers, yes. A Muslim is the one who believes in all prophets, but you don't follow their Sharia. You follow the Sharia of your own Prophet. Now the core is the same, belief in God, day of judgment, justice of God, that stays the same. But some of the details, like how you pray, how you go to Hajj, these could be different. And then you also had in the Sharia of Prophet Ibrahim circumcision. So those believers who believed in the path of Ibrahim, they would also be circumcised. And you also had the Hajj, that you would do pilgrimage to the Hajj. This is the religion of Ibrahim. So those believing grandfathers of the Prophet, they were on the path of Ibrahim They followed that religion and this was acceptable to follow. If you were not from Bani Israel, you were not obligated to follow the Sharia of Musa or the Sharia of Isa Now there's one problem with this opinion and this is why you have a third opinion. Some say, some argue, Prophet Muhammad is greater than the Prophet Ibrahim. He's superior to him, he's higher in rank than him. So if he's higher in rank than him, how would God allow him to follow another Prophet who is lower in rank from him? Some just have this, you know, uh, this logic that this is not right. Because when you follow someone else, that other person whom you're following should be greater than you. Why would God ask you to follow someone if you're greater than that person? And you have a higher status than that other prophet. So some give us a third opinion. And they say that what the prophet used to practice is the exact same religion of Ibrahim, but he wasn't following the religion of Ibrahim. Just as God, revealed to Ibrahim, practice my faith this way. He revealed to Prophet Muhammad, practice my faith this way. So it's the same as the teachings of Ibrahim but he wasn't following them, he was receiving them from Allah, but it happened to be that they were exactly the same Sharia, the same religion. In that regard we could say he did not actually follow him and that's why there's one hadith from the Imam he says the Prophet once, after mentioning Ibrahim, he says, Dinuhu Dini, his religion is my religion, and my religion is his religion. Wadini Dinu. My path is his path, his path is my path. In other words, he's saying, I'm not following him. We just have the same path, we have the same religion. His religion is my religion, my religion is his religion. We were both inspired by God to go by this path. So I'm not really following him, but I have the same religion. 
And so some scholars say this is the third opinion. He wasn't following Ibrahim he had the same religion. And by the way, the Quran does say that Ibrahim, what was the name of his religion? Islam. It's Hanifiya we call it, it's a description. But the name of that religion is Islam. The Quran is very clear that Ibrahim was not a Jew, not a Christian, but he was a Hanif Muslim, Hanifan Musliman. He was an upright Muslim. And the Quran says that when he was dying, Ibrahim, he gathered his sons around him, he gave them a will, he told them, Wala tamutunna illa wa antum Muslimun. Don't die except as Muslims. So we believe that all the religions of God, their name is Islam, to submit to God, because that's the meaning of Islam, submission to Allah. However, some prophets had different sharia. The details of how you practice the faith are a little bit different. So we call the sharia of Musa Judaism, but his faith, the religion is named what? Islam. So even Musa, his religion was Islam, but his sharia is called Judaism. Isa السلام, his sharia is called Christianity or Nasrani in Arabic, however his religion is Islam. So the Prophet's religion was also Islam just like any other Prophet. 40 years he did not have any specific sharia, it was just the core of the religion. After 40 years when he receives the Quran, then Allah gives him a very specific detailed sharia. In any case, whether we accept opinion number one, two or three, the Prophet was a believer in God and unfortunately you will find some hadiths in some books of other schools of thought that will tell you the Prophet sometimes he would seek the blessing of an idol in Mecca, you know, to the point where sometimes he could be seen as if he's worshipping that idol. We unanimously reject these hadiths, these are false fabricated hadiths, they wanted to justify for some companions when they were told, hey you companions you worship the idols before Islam, whereas you know Imam Ali for example did not, how are you qualified to represent the Prophet? So they said, oh you know the Prophet before Islam, he sometimes would touch the idols too and this was just to justify for their companions. We reject these hadiths, they're not authentic, uh, the hadith are very very clear that the Prophet never worshipped an idol, he was on the path of Tawheed, on the path of Ibrahim alayhi salam.